The start of the year is always a time of change and renewal. And when we recently recorded this episode, our 2024 market outlook, which we produced in front of a live audience at CBRE's New York office, the start of the show's new year was a time for asking big questions about the future of commercial real estate. I welcome CBRE's Global Chief Economist, Richard Barkham, and our old friend, Jim Costello, Chief Economist of the MSCI Real Estate Assets Team. They shared their unique forecasting insights and market analyses, and we also heard from the audience, too. Coming up, burning questions and fresh perspectives, digging into what's front of mind for colleagues and clients as we kick off a new year. Extra, extra, I'm Spencer Levy, and that's right now on a special edition of The Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take. Jim Costello, Chief Economist, MSCI Real Assets. Always good to see you. Great to see you, Jim. And Richard Barkham, Global Chief Economist, CBRE. Thanks for having me, Spence. Well, actually, welcome back. We're going to now be doing part two of this conversation we had in New York recently with a live studio audience talking about what's happening in the market, and many of them are asking us terrific questions about what's on their mind for 2024, certainly a year that's going to be fraught with risk, but opportunity. Now I'd like to turn to our esteemed audience here, and as I linger in the way I introduce everybody here, does anybody have a question? Yes, what's your name and what do you do? Um, Hi, my name is Sophie Schoenenberger, and I'm in CBRE Investment Banking. And I wanted to know what you think will be the role of ESG in 2024 and how that will impact the economy and investment in commercial real estate. Who wants to cover ESG? And uh, I'll, I'll frame it just a little bit. Major topic for the last several years. There has been some chatter in the papers recently about maybe it's declining importance, certainly in the public markets where certain ESG funds have not performed as well. There's also been some chatter in our industry of it falling in its status because capital is so scarce today. How do you see it, Jim? I think the ESG issues are going to continue to be important uh, because the move, especially from capital sources outside of the United States, there's an understanding that we are investing for the long term here. We have not just a responsibility for a quarterly return. We have a responsibility to deliver something that's sustainable over an extended period of time to future generations. There's much more of a view on that in terms of global capital. I don't think everything in the United States has been incorporated on that yet. I don't think that everything is being priced relative to the environmental risks that are out there. And part of that is because there's just not the the mandate for a lot of capital in the United States at the moment. Richard, any other thoughts on ESG? Yes, we're we're watching this very closely. Uh, The intensity with which society and investors pursue ESG goals is going to ebb and flow, obviously. A lot of the action is at the state and city level. We're tracking very carefully the policy initiatives uh, at the local level. I think investors will have to watch that because there are policies that penalize buildings that are not energy efficient, uh, and they are just growing in the United States. Clever investors will want to follow that, not just what's been enacted, but what's coming in the pipeline. Uh, I'm pleased to say CBRE Econometric Advisors has got a database of all of these factors that people can access. And I think that's true in Europe as well. It's a bit less true in Asia. It's true in the Pacific area. Um, I see that only continuing and you have to grapple with it if you're a real estate investor. And if you're positive as a real estate investor, you'll want to make a contribution to decarbonizing. 
Well, I'd like to add just one additional point there, because I think very often, including in part in this discussion, when people talk ESG, they talk about the E, decarbonization. I like to shift the conversation a little bit to the S, and I think that comes down to housing. I think affordable housing is the solution to helping with the social issues that we have. If we had more affordable housing, it would solve just about every other issue out there. And I'm pleased to say that on this show, we had the head of Nuveen's affordable housing division that bought a $4 billion company in affordable housing. Blackstone just bought a big affordable housing portfolio. Related's buying a big portfolio right now. So I think that what you may see moving forward, because it brings two very important issues together, scarcity of housing, need for affordability, private money is finally going into affordable, capital A affordable, regulated housing, which is different than you might see where people just want workforce housing. Yeah, I mean, I've followed this for many years as a professor as well as a real estate researcher. I would say in general that modern cities require about 25% of the housing stock to be affordable or below market rent in order for the city to be socially sustainable and and everybody to get along and the city to offer a decent standard of living for all its inhabitants you need about 25 percent on balance affordable and i think some cities have that some cities don't i think we need to aim for that Uh, i don't think it should distract us because uh, we need more housing as well as more affordable housing it's not affordable housing isn't an answer in and of itself. It's part of the answer. More housing is the answer. Question. Just state your name and what you do first, please. Hi there. Uh, Lauren Blackwell with CBRE's Global Client Care Team here in New York. Regional bank failures were a big feature of 2023. And I wonder if you think there's going to be any more coming this year. Good question. If you don't mind me... uh, Hit it, Richard. Well, it's one of the excuses I use for poor forecasting in 2023. I think if the Fed hadn't intervened so aggressively and the FDIC on the banking sector, we may well have had the recession that we all forecast. Um, And even now, the Fed is still making accessible quite high levels of liquidity to the regional banking sector. So I think as long as that continues, the pain within the regional banking sector will be contained. I think when the crisis erupted, we did the same as everybody else. We downloaded 4,800 bank balance sheets, stress tested them, and thought that maybe three to 400 banks would probably fail. Um, I still think that that amount of balance sheet reconstruction or balance sheet rebuilding is required. But under the current conditions of relatively stable demand in the economy, uh, but also Fed really wrapping its arms around the sector, then that will play out slowly enough not to cause too much pain. Capital markets abhor a vacuum, though, and with the, the stress that we saw from those regional banks, regional banks uh, had a record share of all commercial real estate finance uh, for the United States in the first quarter of this year. Then the crisis hits, and we saw a record decline in the originations data we track of their share into the second quarter. It just shut off right away. Uh, because these folks were reserving capital, becoming more conservative because of the issues that they're facing of more scrutiny. At the same time, private credit solutions really jumped up. There was a plethora of new entrants. We had a hard time on our data team actually identifying some of these new private credit teams because so many people suddenly put their shingle out doing some new lending. That uh, creates an investment opportunity. You know, there are all these new private credit teams out there. Another word for that is debt funds. (laughs) But that transition... uh, I'm wondering how much of that impacts the markets where the small banks were 
so dominant. The small banks were typically, you don't have a small bank in uh, rural Kansas making a loan on Fifth Avenue in, in Manhattan. They loan in their local communities. So I, it's, again, lagged impact of the data. We can't see it yet, but I'm wondering how much of an impact that those uh, slowdown from the regional banks impacts the smaller markets in the country because those banks were vitally important to financing in the smaller assets and the smaller markets. That's where I think that shock is probably going to be felt the most, but we're not going to see the data for another quarter or two. There are a couple of other things. Despite what I've said, the banks aren't out of the wood yet. I mean, in one sense, the fall in the Treasury rate is good because these banks have got Treasury securities on their balance sheet. But we're noticing as well at the bottom end of the income spectrum, defaults on credit cards are going up. And there's a disproportionate amount of those defaults are going to fall on the small and regional banks. Um, so it, it, this is not a story that's over, but it is one that the Federal Reserve, for better or worse, has feather-bedded the banking system. Now, where we go as a society, um, if banks aren't allowed to fail, is another story. This was a story of Japan in the 1980s and the 1990s. Banks were not allowed to fail, um, and you end up with a very sluggish economy coming out of it. However, for the time being, notwithstanding what uh, Jim has said, the, there may well be a, a consequence for some of the smaller regional economies in terms of lending, but not necessarily the, the kind of snowballing banking crisis coming back that we thought might happen in April. Next question. Stefan Weiss uh, with CBRE Econometric Advisors. So the, the buzzwords of onshoring and nearshoring, we've certainly heard and, and we love to ingest them. But when I look at the data, I look at U.S. manufacturing, which has been relatively flat over the last couple of years, and manufacturing in Mexico, which is up, but by no means off of its long-run trend. Are we falling victim to some catchy buzzwords? Or is there data out there that suggests there is this nearshoring or onshoring happening, which are two different questions? Um, or maybe it hasn't happened yet and we're waiting on it. Let me answer one with one actual piece of data, and then I want to ask Richard and Jim to jump in. Do you know who the number one investor in Mexican manufacturing is today? China, by a lot. They are by far the biggest investor there, and the reason is exactly what we've been talking about, about the risk of nearshoring or I guess offshoring from China back to the United States. China's like, well, we're not going to be left behind. We're just going to build in Mexico. So that is one very important data point that supports the fact that this is really happening. But Richard and, and Jim, other data points supporting reshoring re uh, or new manufacturing in the Americas. Uh, well, if I could be a little bit controversial about this, I find this is something, from as an English economist, um, it's very difficult to talk to Americans about um, because I think Americans want to believe in reshoring, almost irrespective of, of what the data says. Um, I usually find myself saying that reshoring is happening. Um, and it is to a certain extent. Certain parts of the auto industry are coming back for fear of being shut out of a, a very important market. Um, but if you look at the share of manufacturing employment, of total employment, it's still going down. So uh, I think it's happening to a certain extent, probably not as much as the politicians and the media would like to have us all believe. But that's part of the story, that maybe there's more nearshoring, but it doesn't mean jobs. It means more output, but we just have a more efficient rate of uh, labor utilization, more robots, fewer workers. 
And that's an opportunity to kind of bring some of that to activity in. That's what I'd be looking at. I'd be looking at the output figures. I have not looked at it recently, but yeah. that, that's what I'd be looking for. Maybe it doesn't impact jobs. Maybe it just impacts output. It's a story that hasn't finished as well. Uh, We're in a situation where, to a certain extent, we're deglobalizing. So there will be some resorting of production. What I really hope is, and I'd, if you get too much reshoring of production, then you're going to start to eat into capital mobility as well. You can't have trade barriers at the product level without having some sort of barriers at the capital level. It just doesn't work. So uh, it can I, I, increase the potential rate of inflation as well. Well, I would think so, yes. Question. Now state your name and please go ahead. Chase Bolding with Invesco Real Estate in New York. Is it possible that we're all anchored to too much optimism around industrial? And is there a more subdued outlook with respect to fundamentals or performance versus what we've seen um, in the past few years? Industrial is a crowded trade. There's a lot of capital trying to chase industrial because it feels like it's one of the safest things. And you know, one of the key demands, uh, drivers for industrial was everybody locked on their couch, you know, locked up at home, uh, buying goods. It had to be stored someplace. Goods consumption it's still growing, but it's increasing at a decreasing rate. We're kind of past the hump of all the spending that went on for all the home purchases. It's not as if uh, it can continue to grow in the kind of pace of demand that we saw. Uh, but that, that said, we're not like in a 1980s kind of situation of just excessive construction. And even if we were, we are building at a high pace compared to the past. But it's not like offices in the 1980s when uh, developers went too far, uh, simply because you can shut this pipeline down much more quickly than other asset classes. And it's a smaller uh, asset, not one big chunk of space uh, coming to the market at once. It's a lot of smaller buildings coming in. So it's easier to shut down that construction pipeline if we do end up building too much. Thinking about this relative to previous periods when everybody was doing too much in like the office market, doesn't have the same conditions going in, so it's hard to see the same kind of pain uh, coming out. I've tried my hardest to beat up the positivity around industrial, just because I think you know, it makes sense for investors always to test out their own ideas. So you look at, is it you know, are stock levels too high in the American economy? Are they going to come down and we're going to need less space to put all of that stock? We're going to run out of road on the digital economy and e-commerce. Um, are we building too much space? I've had a look at all of those things. And actually, still at the end of the day, you come out with a pretty positive case for industrial. Just coming out of e-commerce growth. We've tried to say that it would level off at 12% and then at 18% and at 22%. I've seen all of the S-curves, um, but it's still on the upward slope of, of e-commerce. And that's going to be a tailwind. Even if that were to, to ease off a little bit, so much of our industrial space is, is outdated and old-fashioned. Um, there is still a job to be done in terms of um, upgrading. And I, I just keep coming back to the fact that in our top 30 markets, up until very recently, I think it's probably still true, in top 30 markets, the average vacancy rate's under 3%. That's phenomenally tight, even despite the supply pipeline. So much as I try to beat it up, it's a pretty resilient hypothesis, uh, the, the growth of the industrial sector. Our last question of the day in New York City, the not quite live from New York segment. Please state your name and who you are, what you do, and the question. Wonderful. Um, Liliana Diacono with DWS Group. 
So a topic that's been discussed widely nowadays is AI and how it's impacting many, many industries. And I wonder, in your view, how is AI impacting commercial real estate? And what are some of the things that investors nowadays need to think about when thinking about AI and real estate? And what are some of the real estate sectors that you think are going to be impacted more or less by this trend? Yeah, I'll have a go. I've just recently toured a couple of data centers. And so um, the scale of demand for for, uh, co-location facilities to support um, hyperscalers and AI providers, it's mind-boggling. The constraint is the power. It's clearly going to fuel growth in that uh, activity. The other thing that my mind goes to is just, is it going to further reduce the amount of workers in the, the service sector? Low and mid-level office jobs uh, can be done by artificial intelligence. And that's undoubtedly true. But if I, if I could just give you a, a, an anecdote, when I started, I'm not that old, but I am old enough to remember that w- when I started in research and I wanted to do a chart, um, I had to go across to the library and I had to write down numbers and I had to come back and I had to put it on, on a graph paper and draw it out. Um, and if I wanted to run a regression, I had to go over to the computer center and pick up the output and put it in a wheelbarrow and take it back to the university department. Now, nowadays, as a researcher, my productivity has gone up like a bazillion percent. I can go to any central bank in the world, I can download a a global data set, and I can do econometrics on it in half an hour. With the power of spreadsheets and statistics and big data, my productivity as a researcher has gone up hugely, and I think artificial intelligence is only going to increase that. The odd thing is the number of economists and researchers has also gone up as well. So I don't fully believe all of those stories that artificial intelligence is going to decimate the service sector. That productivity creates its own work. That demand will show up in different areas uh, and in different places and will require different amenities and work styles. But I don't believe that artificial intelligence is going to decimate the service sector. It's just going to force the pace of change. Yeah, it creates the opportunity to do far more things than the past. When running a regression took a trip to uh, the university printing center to pick up the output, you were careful about the analysis you were doing. Nowadays, you could just do a really quick analysis just to see, you know, what does this do? Just thinking about something quickly. So people have new opportunities to come out of that to express their creativity and do different things. Uh, think about today. We're doing a little recording. We're getting together, a uh, bunch of friends, colleagues, talking about things. In the past, the technology to do something like this was reserved for a very small segment of uh, the economy uh, off uh, like at the Radio City there. There's new tech. It doesn't mean that uh, all the old tech is dead. It just means that there's new ways to reach audiences, new ways to do things. And with the AI... Uh, as that expands, people are going to find new ways to be productive. They're going to find other service things they could be doing, and they're going to use it in different ways. Just like YouTube didn't kill broadcast television, it allows small producers uh, who do interesting things who never would have had an audience before to get out there. And we'll see all kinds of new and creative stuff come out of that. I don't know what, uh, but there will be something. And with apologies to the Buggles. 
video did not kill the radio star. Hey, one other thing. Sure. Uh, you, you had this, this question. It's almost an evergreen thing in my career is every downturn and recovery we go through, there's a, a human behavior thing where people just look at the last bad event that they went through thinking that, well, this down cycle and recovery will be like the last one. Don't make that mistake. Every downturn has unique forces going into it and unique drivers, and it leads to new investment opportunities coming out of it. So the conditions that drove the financial crisis were different than what drove the SNL crisis. And what we're going through today has different drivers as well. There are going to be opportunities coming out of a downturn to recovery. They may not be the same opportunities that we saw after the previous downturns. So you have to think about the conditions and how they vary. And with that, I'd like to thank our two guests here today, two truly great friends of mine, Jim Costello, Chief Economist, MSCI Real Assets, formerly known as RCA. Jim, can't believe it took this long to get you on the show. Can't wait to have you back. That'd be fun. And Richard Barkham, another great job today, Richard. Richard Barkham, Global Chief Economist, CBRE. Thanks for coming out today, Richard. Honored and delighted to be here, Spence. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. We hope you enjoyed this special edition of The Weekly Take. We know we certainly like hearing from our listeners, and we'd like to hear from you too. So drop us a line at our homepage, cbre.com slash theweeklytake. And as always, share the show and subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. We'll be back to our regular programming routine next week, and we look forward to connecting with you then. I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well.